0: amen um today we're gonna wrap up this six-week look at the story of our faith and as we were praying that God is in control that one of the things that we looked at in this story is that God has this power that no matter where the world flows he will see his work done he will not be frustrated by anything that the world gives And, uh, last week we started to explore the spirit of God when our, our third stage. And so in our third stage, we, we first looked at God, we next looked at Jesus and now we're looking at the Holy spirit. And in the final stage of the apostles creed, the Holy spirit does some things. and, And we hear the Holy spirit and we, we talk about the church and this church is the, the greater entity of the body of Christ. And then right after that, we talk about the communion of the saints and the communion of the saints recognizes that while we are part of this big entity, we're all individuals. And so we come as as individuals to God's church. And when we come to as individuals to God's church, we, we explored that in the story of Job He learns that God is only about goodness, only about life. And so last week, we considered that in the church, among the community of the saints, we should expect to find life and provision for life, identifying the goodness of life that God has put in every person because every person, their existence has been lent to them by God, who is existence itself. And what I would want to point out before we move on from this idea of the community of the saints and us as individuals is that we don't necessarily disappear into the church. God values us as individuals and he uniquely gifts each of us. So each of us have this gift that we bring to the church. It's not the church is this big mass and we just become one of the faceless people in this mass. And we ourselves disappear. God values each of us as an individual and he gifts each of us in that way. So as we close, uh, this series, there's a couple of thoughts that I want to chase down, um, a couple of loose ends I want to tie up. And this is one of those. And it's this idea that when we have a gifting we can often get caught up in this worry about, I need to use my gifting. I need people, I need to do this for God. And in some ways, sometimes people get caught up in, my gift is for everyone else. Uh, I picture it as kind of an Oprah show. Oprah's like, you get my gift and you get my gift and you get my gift. She does this thing where everybody gets gifts and And it can be in that sense. And CS Lewis identified this. He identified this phenomenon in the, in the screw tape letters. He talked about a charitable woman. She had the gift of charity and he said, she's the sort of woman who lives for others. You can tell because the others have a hunted look in their expression. And so the others, this woman comes out and she's so overbearingly charitable that all these people feel hunted and, and their, the gift is oppressive. And what I would like to change the dynamic to is that this isn't, this doesn't even happen intentionally or with ill intent often. I think that some of this can happen out of the idea that it can be more awkward to accept a gift that someone else has than to give from your own gift. It's awkward to, to think someone's putting themselves out for me. Someone's giving me their time and, and I owe them. And, and there's this, this difficulty with thinking, well, how do I pay them back all the time? And you get in this, you get in this feeling of debt and owing and, and it can be hard just to be humble and just appreciate receiving. But life in the church If we find life and provision for life here, it's a collaborative effort. We can't just give
1: and turn off receiving.
0: Rowan Williams, he, he put it this way, a well-functioning Christian community is going to be one in which everybody is working steadily to release the gifts of others. And so Rowan Williams, he, the focus is releasing gifts of others. And if everybody's focusing on releasing other gifts of the other giftings, people are going to ask you for your own gifting. It will happen organically. It'll have, it'll happen naturally. And so you don't have to stress, where am I going to find the door for my gift? God's given me this. And, and there, there goes the receiving debt again. Well, God's given me this. I owe God something. And so I have to give my gift to someone if we all look to open up the life God's given everyone, the giftings will flow. And so this is one of the things that we look at in the community of the saints that the Holy Spirit brings about in this third act. He gifts everyone individually. And often those giftings can be life to the person to allow them to exercise it. We've had Esther here off and on during the weeks that she can be here. She has a gifting for emotional and mental health. And there can be a sense in which she doesn't always have to come and and present herself. In this collaborative community, you can identify the gifting in her or the gifting in someone else and go to them and ask for it. There's an openness to community that it's okay to ask. It's okay to be vulnerable and say, you have a gifting and I have a need. And so you ask for giftings in that way. The next line in this third act, it says the Holy Spirit and then talks about He, the universal church that he empowers, the community of the saints. And then I think it's interesting that the next line is the forgiveness of sins. Because we can't have all this communion of the saints that leads to the bigger church, if we don't have forgiveness of sins, not just from God, but for one another. And so on this, I'd like to pause for a minute um, on this idea of forgiveness and talk about this idea of sin. It says the forgiveness of sins. Well, well, what is sin? And this is something that theologians have, have had difficulty in, in expressing. Well, some say it's a transgression of a divine law. It's doing something immoral. And, and trying to come up with a description of, of sin is a difficulty that people try to tackle. No analogy is perfect, but I'd like to offer a sense in which I've, I've come to understand it. To sin is to choose evil. And to choose evil is to choose not God. This means that if God, as we've looked at in this story, is existence itself, if he is life and existence, then sin and evil are simply defined as anything that removes life. And what this really means is that evil is
1: nothingness. It's like darkness.
0: The Bible uses this analogy. Darkness isn't a thing. Darkness is the absence of things. Darkness is the absence of light. And so there's this idea that evil is just emptiness. And sin and evil are those things that chip away at everything God gives his existence to and brings it to emptiness and nothing. I've thought about how this might carry into the Garden of Eden because there we see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is what God did not want Adam and Eve to eat from. I'm of the opinion that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't really anything magical. It wasn't something that you ate from and you had a sudden download of every decision you could make in life and you knew what was good and you knew what was evil like this matrix style where Trinity can say, I need flight plans to to fly a helicopter. Boop, it's in her head and she goes and flies the helicopter. I don't see it as this magical event.
1: God wants us to love him and love demands a freedom of choice. You have to be able to
0: choose, say you chose the person you chose to love and to say you have the option not to choose them. Love exists in freedom. And so God offers a tree that is the choice of not God. He made everything good. Without offering this tree, there would have been no choice of not God. So how can you ever say you truly love God if you have no choice to not love God? God talks, I believe it's De- Deuteronomy 32, he says, If someone comes to test you and call you away from me, I am giving you this as a chance to show you love me. Love comes out in freedom of choice. And so how I've pictured that this might work
1: is we say that the sweet is not really so sweet without the bitter.
0: you really don't understand sweetness until you understand bitterness. And so I believe that this tree, it offered the chance for the complete knowledge of good because it offered you a chance to choose evil.
1: Adam and Eve, they had the sweet.
0: They had the sweetness but they didn't have the full knowledge of it until they tasted the bitterness of a
1: choice into nothing. Then
0: in choosing nothing, their eyes were revealed to the good and they really came to appreciate it. And so that's how I've come to consider it. You know, again, no no analogy is perfect, but if evil is nothingness, if evil is darkness and just absence of anything, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil showed that our choices really boiled down to God and not God in this world, and that is all knowledge right there. Uh, I was watching this this TV show, and this this girl—it's it's a pioneer story, and and this girl—it talks about the how they're traveling to Oregon, and some of the writing is just phenomenal in this in this TV show, and. She experiences, she talks about it, she's going through the prairies, life is so fascinating, everything's good. And they encounter bandits on the highway. And for the first time in her life, she experiences death. She experiences death of her first love. And in the the writing of this story, this girl says, I never knew wisdom before. And now I know wisdom. I know everything there is to know. All there is is either life or death. But regardless of how one understands the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what it boils down to is that sin is anti-life. You can't necessarily call it antimatter because antimatter even makes up a thing. Antimatter takes space; it, it's a thing. This is an emptiness; it's anti-life. And it leads
1: to nothing. It removes life bit by bit by bit.
0: And what's interesting is when someone sins against me, one of the best descriptions I can think to call it is a little death happens in me. A little void opens up
1: inside of me and a little bit of life escapes.
0: And so taking this back to forgiveness, if sin and evil that happen against me, if that is nothingness acting against me, and it's chipping away at my life bit by bit, forgiveness doesn't just happen because we work really hard to say, it's okay. I just work to live a life of
1: denial. True forgiveness
0: takes place when I have enough life in me to cross the void, to cross that little bit of death that was caused in me. And I have enough life to cross that and extend life back to the person who sinned against me. Uh, One of my worst nights of my life happened in Iraq. Some of you may know this story. I was a brand new leader and I sent out my best soldier on a mission. His name was Joel. I went to bed and I wake up to footsteps pounding down the hall and people yelling and I'm on base and I open the door and I'm like, what happened? And they say his truck hit a bomb. He's dead.
1: I wanted nothing but revenge.
0: Nothingness, death, had touched my life. And I wanted revenge. That emptiness wanted to suck me into it. I held on to that desire for revenge for years, almost a decade. And when I became a believer, I suddenly had this life in me. I didn't even understand what exactly had happened to me. And I remember going to the pastor of the church I was attending at the time. And I said, I don't know quite what's happening to me, but I am so full of life. I want even the people that killed Joel to have life. I don't want revenge. And this is this idea that there is so much life in you that when forgiveness happens, you have so much life that it jumps the void of nothingness that has been created by sin
1: and it extends life.
0: And so here we are, the community of the saints connected by the Holy spirit who brought Jesus to life, who brings life, who is God life itself. And we are that community of saints. And it notes right after the community of saints that we have the forgiveness of sins. And so we are the community of saints because we have enough life to truly forgive each other. We are plugged into the source of life. The source of life, Jesus said, could be so powerful they would cross over to your enemies even as they kill you. As they are sucking you into what feels like nothingness. You can have so much life that it crosses over to them anyway. So we have this idea of life. We have this idea that the community of saints is held together by this ability to forgive. And not only do we have so much life that we're forgiving each other and we remain a community but as we've explored that life then extends to the world because we are so full of life. We are plugged into the river of life that it not only flows and just pools here, but it flows out the doors. And we looked at Paul, how Paul said, when you live in the world, you bring peace to the world, you pray for them and you bring life to them.
1: And so I'd go back to the story of Job and the, and the role of God.
0: If God is all about happiness, true happiness, happiness in life, if God is all about bringing goodness wherever he can, he doesn't just give us enough for right here. He gives us enough to go out that door. And this then brings us to the close of our story.
1: For sin
0: and evil are chipping away at life. They're pulling us into nothingness. They're pulling us into darkness. They're pulling us into not God. Because when you think about it, there's only God and not God. God, existence himself says, plug into me and I will ensure you do not disappear completely into death, into nothingness. In me, you will have eternal existence. And that's how our story ends. It says that we're the community of the saints. We, we forgive. And the last two lines talk about our everlasting life that we look forward to. Our story opened with God invading nothingness to create. And our story ends with our belief that nothingness will never overcome us. What we're left at the end of this story is to consider what are our takeaways from this? What's practical out of this? Number one, what this story has helped me to do is realize the simplicity of what I believe. It doesn't have to be complicated. It is a simple story. And it's a story that just grabs your imagination and pulls you in. So for me, going through this, one of the things that I've taken away is just simplicity. Just the simplicity and beauty
1: of faith. I know two more takeaways that I would like to leave you with.
0: One is that in a nation divided, this story reminds us that God has lent existence to everyone. And my role as an imager of God who only wants to bring life and provision for life. My role is to identify in every person over the divisions the world creates. My role is to identify that flicker of God's existence in each and every person and provide for its life. The second Thing that I would offer you to take home from this series is that right now we live in a world that is fearful. We watched the January 6th Capitol riots. We see now possibly the largest military action taking place since World War II with Russia and Ukraine. And it can feel so chaotic. But what we've explored in this story is God's gentle omnipotence where he is not there watching all of this happen to us. He is here. His existence is intricately tied to earth and everything on earth. And God is here experiencing the pain of what we might be about to watch between Russia and Ukraine. God is ready to be crucified thousands of times over as these soldiers might die because God's existence is in every one of them. God didn't decide that this was worth it for all of us as an independent third party. He's not up there looking at us and saying, this will all be worth it. Press on. <laughs> Good luck. He's not just up there hoping we'll make it through. He's not up there just extending his hand and hoping we can hold on long enough. So he is not an independent third party. He has dedicated himself as an invested party to say that all of this will be so worth it. I will starve to death with the Ukrainians who might find themselves with no food in the middle of war. God has said, I will starve to death with them. He says, this will be so worth it that I will bleed out with every Russian soldier who crosses that border. God has said, this is so worth it. I will be right there with it and I will die and
1: suffer through everything with you. I'd like to close,
0: have Nate come back up and sing a song, the last song. There's a short message. I want to tie up some loose ends and, and leave you with these couple of things. And so as we consider that in a nation divided, we're looking for that life, that flicker of life in every person, as we consider that God has tied himself to every person. What I would encourage you with, if I, could, if I could ask of anything from the church, from those who are listening to me, is to go back to when we looked at Paul and what Paul said was the first role of the church. The first and primary role of the church was to pray for everyone, even the worst of sinners. And so we've culminated this series And possibly even now, as Nate plays, you might begin to consider who should I pray for? If the first role of the church is to pray, the first role of the church isn't to show up on Sundays, check the box. The first role of the church isn't to say, I have all the right beliefs. The first role of the church, Paul says, is simply to pray for everyone. We are that life and that provision for life. It might be someone that wronged you. It might be someone that Struggling health wise, I don't know. But as we sing this last song and as we end early, what I might even invite you to do is the time that you would normally dedicate to this service and give to listening to me, maybe just that extra five to 10 minutes, you would spend it doing the first mission of the church. And that is to pray for the world.
1: Let's sing this last song.